Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan and as always I will be your host for this episode. Now this is part one of a three-part series on crimes involving the old Fort Hood military installation that is now known as Fort Cavazos. It does tie into episode 80, the Luby's Massacre, as the town of Killeen, Texas is just outside the military base, but there is no direct correlation between the crimes other than geography. And starting with this episode, we will discuss the crimes that occurred on the base and its effect on the culture and future crimes. And if you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. Sometimes military leaders are remembered for their impressive battle strategies and major victories. Generals with the names Eisenhower, Washington, and Grant are often spoke of with reverence and eventually served as presidents due to their great leadership skills. But sometimes a military leader is a disaster, as was the case with John Bell Hood. As a Confederate general during the Civil War, Hood was known for ordering his troops into frontal assaults that gained nothing and cost the lives of thousands of rebel soldiers. It was said by one historian that the decision to appoint Hood to the final defense of Atlanta was the single largest mistake made during the entire war. While other historians would not be so harsh and claim Hood was given an impossible task for any leader, his decision to constantly charge his troops into superior numbers was seen as a continual waste of human life and it only helped to further the destruction of the Confederate Army. John Bell Hood died 15 years after his service in the Confederate Army. Despite surviving two large caliber wounds to his arm and leg, the latter requiring his leg to be amputated, he succumbed to yellow fever during an epidemic in New Orleans during the winter of 1878 to 1879. Despite his lackluster and often barbaric military accolades, the native Texan's legacy lived on through the naming of Hood County in Texas and eventually a small military installation outside Killeen, Texas was named Camp Hood in his honor. While some may expect that over 70 years there would be some criminal activity on the base, the crimes that are associated with the base prior to being renamed Fort Cavazos in 2022 are large in scale and unfortunately frequent. Over the next few episodes, we will discuss some of the major crimes that occurred on the base and how those crimes affected the culture and future events on the base. We will refer to the base as Fort Hood as that was its name during these events and it's how they are referenced in history, but we also recognize the need to change the name from one that gave legacy to a man who saw people of color as inferior and therefore he needs no positive recognition. Camp Hood's history was influenced by Germany's highly advanced tank warfare during World War II. The Allied powers were woefully behind in armor and weapons technology and lacked the firepower and maneuverability to knock out Germany's superior tanks. The United States entered the war after the bombing of Pearl Harbor in December of 1941, and by January of 1942, they were looking for somewhere to test out new anti-armor vehicles called tank destroyers. 
These armored vehicles were designed with the sole purpose of destroying German tanks and tank crews, as the Allies realized knocking out German armor would significantly damage their war capabilities. The Army Air Corps was doing the same with fighter aircraft technology that would destroy the Luftwaffe and make the skies above Germany safe for bombing. The two-pronged approach of knocking out German air and ground forces was designed to bring an end to the European campaign and restore peace to the area. To test these new weapons and weapon systems, the Army needed a lot of open space and that is something that existed in Texas. But while there was abundant land in West Texas, the Army wanted to make it easy to get troops and equipment to and from the area, and Central Texas had available land and was more accessible, and the area around Killeen, just north of Austin, was perfect. The building of the camp did displace many of the original residents of the area and disrupted their grazing lands, but an agreement was signed that allows ranchers access to parts of the military base for livestock grazing, and that agreement still exists today. By September of 1942, the base was ready to train new troops and more land was purchased and used for training and a prisoner of war camp. By 1943, the base was home to almost 100,000 soldiers, which was the peak of its population during the war. With the majority of German tanks destroyed by 1944, the base began drying down and by 1945 there was only 11,000 troops stationed on site. The camp was all but abandoned during the next few years, but in 1950 the camp was designated a fort and money was allocated to turn it into a permanent training facility. One of its most famous trainees was Elvis Presley, who was drafted into service and completed his training at Fort Hood in 1958. The base now known as Fort Hood served several missions during the Cold War. While it continued to train soldiers for conflicts in Korea and Vietnam, it also secretly housed nuclear weapons in an underground bunker. During the 70s and 80s, the base served as a testing ground for new vehicles such as the M1 Abrams main battle tank, the versatile Humvee, the Apache attack helicopter, the M2 Bradley fighting vehicle, and the MLRS rocket artillery platform. During the 1990s, the base supported training and supplied soldiers for the Gulf War, the conflict in Somalia, and the wars in the Balkans. As the new millennium rolled around, the base was instrumental in implementing advanced versions of the vehicles it tested during the 80s and provided soldiers and equipment for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Base was also used to help victims of Hurricane Katrina in 2005. In 2007, an Army sergeant participating in a land navigation training course got lost on the course and ended up wandering parts of the 15,000-acre training site. After three days of searching, his body was discovered and an autopsy revealed he had died from a combination of hyperthermia and dehydration. An investigation into his death resulted in several high-ranking Army officials being removed from command posts and reassigned. While their actions did not directly cause the death of Sergeant Spader, it was deemed that certain safety policies and procedures were not followed, and the result was over two dozen soldiers suffering heat injuries and Sergeant Spader losing his life. We'll take a break here and just discuss real quick Fort Hood, uh, and again, I'm referring to it as Fort Hood because this is when all of these events are occurring. That's what its name is. Um, it's not going to be renamed till 2022, and I don't want to switch back and forth between the names. You know, Fort Hood is not going to be that much different from other forts when it comes to uh, soldiers losing their lives from training uh, incidents. We're going to cover a lot of the soldier deaths that occurred that have a little bit more of a outside story to them, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, like Sergeant Spader's case, it's not uncommon 
for uh, soldiers to die during training exercises. When I was in basic training back in 2000 in Fort Benning, we were not allowed to do the what they called the confidence course, which was this high ropes course, um, because a soldier had uh, missed a clip or something like that on, on one of the ropes uh, the the cycle before mine and fell to his death so they had the, the course closed down while they investigated his death and ways to make the course safer so it's not uncommon to have soldiers lose their life in training incidents and and heat injuries are very common I, I don't know what the current military practice is uh, back in the day when I was uh, training if it got above a certain heat index they call it heat cat 5 and you'd have to roll up your pant legs and your arm uh, so you had kind of these I guess kind of capri pants on and then these half sleeve shirts um, as our tops and that was the solution to working in the heat and you had just had to drink a lot of water and guys did suffer heat injuries especially if they weren't used to the heat so again it's it's not like that incident in and of itself speaks to how bad Fort Hood was that kind of thing could happen anywhere and in fact it did happen at several military installations but what I'm trying to set the stage for here is we're going to have a series of what do you want to call them missteps or just an overall culture that kind of looks the other way when when something goes wrong or at least until something goes wrong and that's going to continue through these next few episodes so we're going to cover just mention Sergeant Spader's uh, incident just because I'm going chronologically through stuff, but we're, we're going to cover one major crime for the rest of this episode. And then the episode, the next episode is actually going to talk about several soldier murders, suspicious suicides, the kind of surround the base, another mass shooting. And then the third episode is going to cover the, the tragic case of Vanessa Guillen. So uh, again, just because people are, are dying on this military base, it doesn't make it that different. But what we're going to see again is just the overall kind of negative atmosphere that exists around this Fort Hood. And a lot of people, I'm, I'm not a huge believer in, in paranormal stuff, but a lot of people believe that Fort Hood just has a, a feeling of gloom and doom to it, that you just, you get depressed even showing up there and while the renaming of bases uh, away from Confederate generals was long overdue for a lot of these major bases, there's there's a lot of people that believe that the, the base was, in, in essence, cursed because of the name that it was given. It was, it was given, again, to a general that ordered a lot of his troops to the slaughter. And so that's it, it definitely had a reputation for being a place that claimed a lot of lives. And so again, we're gonna we're gonna cover just a major crime coming up here, and then the next few episodes will cover uh, just the just the overall aspect. Uh, look at a bunch of different crimes. So the incident that Fort Hood is most known for, uh, at least prior to the Vanessa Guillen case, was the 2009 mass shooting that occurred on the base. On November 5, 2009, Major Nadal Hassan, an Army psychiatrist assigned to Fort Hood, committed a mass shooting on the base, killing 13 people and injuring 30 more. Nadal Hassan was born on September 8, 1970 in Arlington County, Virginia. His parents were Palestinian and had emigrated from the West Bank near Jerusalem just a few years before his birth. His family raised him as a 
semi-practicing Muslim from the time he was a child. He attended schools in Virginia with his family moving to Roanoke where his father started a successful market, restaurant, and olive bar. And again, this just depends on which article you read. I read a pretty extensive report into uh, what's going to eventually be his radicalized Islamic viewpoints. And most accounts say his family was, I think the term they used was culturally Muslim. They weren't practicing. They didn't practice Sharia law. They, this successful market restaurant, Olive Bar, uh, it was otherwise described in other places as just kind of this seedy convenience store and kind of a, a rough part of Roanoke. Um, so one place says his father's successful and other place says it's the seedy convenience store where they sold alcohol, which if his parents were devout Muslim, they would not have sold or served alcohol. So again, this is, when we talk about him being Muslim as a child or raised Muslim, he's he's not, it's not a a strictly Islamic family. They they do practice the religion. They do follow some of the teachings just on a general basis, but it's kind of the difference between, you know, somebody being raised as a, uh, a Christian in America, whether you're Catholic, Lutheran, uh, Presbyterian, anything like that, and, and just kind of doing the, going to church every Sunday and, and you know, doing your prayers and that kind of stuff versus, uh, somebody who's you know a Catholic and attends Mass every single day and and believes every teaching of the Catholic Church and and that kind of stuff. So you can be Catholic and then you can be you know a, a Catholic extremist, I guess. Uh, and it's the same way with, with the religion of Islam. So just just to be clear, he wasn't raised in a family that was was following Sharia law or very strict Islamic teachings. It was actually pretty laid back. And after graduating high school at the age of 18, he enlisted in the U.S. Army and completed his associate degree in 1992. So it was actually against his parents' wishings uh, that he joined the Army. He said he wanted to serve his country. Uh, he, was, he was very patriotic at the time, and he actually went into just uh, the infantry and served in Fort Irwin, and while he was going to Fort Irwin, and then he served as what we call Op 4, which is basically you just pretend you're the enemy uh, against US soldiers to train them up before they go overseas. And so back in this time period, it would have been the Gulf War, probably training up guys before they went over the Gulf War or before they went over to Somalia. And it was said he was just an average soldier. Uh, he didn't, he didn't really get made fun of for being Muslim. I guess he was made fun of a lot for his stature. He wasn't a very strong soldier, wasn't acing his, his physical tests or anything like that. So some of his fellow soldiers made fun of him for being a little weak. But it, it sounds like nobody really cared. And again, he wasn't a, a, a devout Muslim at this time. He wasn't, wasn't practicing, wasn't preaching, anything like that. And so he just got along with his fellow soldiers for the most part, was kind of kept to himself and, and uh, just focused on being a soldier and going to school. And so he would get his associate's degree in 92 and he'd get a bachelor's degree in biochemistry in 1995. So he came out of the military, went to school full time, got his bachelor's degree in biochemistry. 
and then he began his army commission in 1997 and went to the school at the Uniformed Services University of Health Sciences in Bethesda, Maryland. So this is basically the medical school for army officers. And we're going to talk about it at length, but his military schooling did not go well as he was on academic probation for much of the time and he took six years to complete the four-year course. And he's actually going to receive a MD in psychiatry and it said that he wanted to be a surgeon but he passed out during I think it was a childbirth he was witnessing or something like that and decided that he wasn't going to be able to perform surgeries so he, he'd go into psychiatry instead. So he does receive his MD in 2003 and he gets assigned to the Walter Reed Medical Center which was a very busy hospital at the time as it was treating wounded soldiers coming back from the war in Afghanistan and eventually the war in Iraq. So he's going to provide psychiatric services to these wounded soldiers coming back from the wars in the, in the Middle East uh, and Southwest Asia. And it was around 2004 when Nadal started complaining to friends and relatives about his service in the army. He told people he'd been targeted for anti-Muslim taunts and experienced vandalism to his personal property on a regular basis because of his Muslim faith. And we're going to see that this is, although it's absolutely unacceptable to be taunting somebody or damaging property because of religion, we're going to see that he's, at this point, around 2003-2004, he's already become pretty extreme in his religious beliefs, and he's making a lot of, of enemies at Walter Reed because of his actions. So we're going to see this is likely the result of some targeting because of his behavior. And according to him, he apparently sought legal advice about getting out of the army and he was told it was next to impossible, which isn't true. I mean, it is difficult because he's got this commission that he's supposed to serve. He's basically supposed to be paying the army back for sending him through medical school. So it's not that it would be impossible to get out of the army. There's definitely ways to do it. It's it's probably going to cost him a lot of money. He's probably likely going to have to pay back six years of medical schooling to to the U.S. government, which would be just from a monetary standpoint difficult for most people. So again, I don't think that it's impossible. I think he felt it was impossible, and so he decided to stay in. But he's already been openly expressing his views about his belief that Muslims in the military should be released as conscientious objectors, which, again, isn't exactly the the correct approach to it. And again, some of this is the media not understanding how the military works when they word things in, in newspaper articles. A conscientious objector can serve in the military. They just don't have to take up arms against a foreign enemy. Uh, the famous case is Desmond Doss in World War II. He was a medic who didn't want to touch a rifle and he was able to get conscientious objector status and that allowed him not to carry a rifle. And then uh, in Okinawa, at, if you haven't seen it, Hacksaw Ridge, it's a very bloody but very good movie and based on Desmond Doss. And he ends up getting a Medal of Honor for basically staying up on top of this this Hacksaw Ridge area and lowering injured army soldiers down uh, this cliff uh, as he's under enemy fire and the whole time he doesn't pick up a rifle and so again 
just because you're a conscientious objector, just because you don't believe in, in this quote-unquote war against Islam that he believes is going on, it, it doesn't automatically mean that you're going to be released from the military. And, and keep in mind, you know, he was in the infantry back in the late 80s, early 90s, and it's one thing to, I guess, be in the infantry and then asked to go over and potentially fight in Iraq and Afghanistan. It's another thing to be a military psychiatrist that is going to be stationed on a base and talking to soldiers that are coming back, that are dealing with PTSD or, or that are struggling because they watched one of their, their buddies get blown up by an IED or whatever it might be. So he's got this viewpoint that he doesn't want to participate in this war, but he's not really going to be participating in this war. He's going to be helping soldiers. And, and But we're going to see, as we talk later, his, his viewpoint is very skewed. On June 1st, 2009, after a man who claimed to be an American member of Al-Qaeda opened fire, killing two military members outside a Little Rock recruiting center, Nadal stated openly that Muslims should stand up and fight against the aggressor. And this should have been a red flag to many in the military, and had they looked closer at Nadal, they would have seen emails sending to a man named Anwar al-Awlaki. This man was an imam who at the time was very respected by the political elite in the Washington, D.C. area. And we're actually going to talk about this. This, When I originally did the research, there was a lot of emphasis put on this imam about potentially radicalizing Nadal. But what we're going to find out is that this imam definitely turned up the notch on, on Nadal's practicing the Islamic faith. And, and this man is going to this mom does turn into a radical leader that is associated with al-qaeda but they actually would later come out and say there was very little communication between the two of them and most of the radicalization was done by nadal through websites and chat rooms and that kind of stuff uh, but they they did actually see these emails between this military u.s military officer and this known al-qaeda supporter and it did send up a red flag but they looked at it and said that that nadal was not somebody that they were going to keep an interest in which again i think is a, is a major mistake as we're going to see and six months before the shootings around the time of the little rock shooting this is when nadal had been emailing alawaki who had since relocated to Yemen. As I said, the imam was now a known al-Qaeda sympathizer, and Nidal looked up to the man and supported his beliefs that Muslims in Iraq and Afghanistan were justified in killing soldiers because of the way they treated Muslims. And so he is going to send a bunch of these types of emails basically asking al-Awlaki if he believed it was okay for things like suicide bombings against U.S. soldiers because it was a war against Islam. And actually, Alawaki's not going to write him back at all, which is, I think, part of why they didn't look closer at Nadal at the time, is he was sending some pretty hypothetical questions and not getting communication back. The only time that Alawaki would write back Nadal was when Nadal mentioned uh, he was giving a bunch of money away to Islamic charities, and Nadal wanted to know what charities he could help support Alawaki with 
And so then he, uh, the imam wrote back a couple times about these charities, but he never wrote back when he talked about Al-Qaeda. And, and part of that might be because Al-Awaki was worried that Nadal was actually working kind of as a, as a double agent to a certain degree. Here's this U.S. Army officer emailing him about Al-Qaeda and suicide bombers and all that kind of stuff. Uh, this imam must have felt it was some type of a trap and basically wouldn't reply to Nadal. So at the end of the day, Nadal's radicalization was not forwarded at all by this Alawaki, at least according to what the FBI would later find. But uh, he's definitely, six months before the shooting, he's, he's getting more and more radical, Nadal is. And at the same time, Nadal was posting to Islamic websites under the screen name Nadal Hassan. So it's not as if he's actually hiding who he is about suicide bombings. He stated that a suicide bomber was like a soldier jumping on a grenade, killing him or herself for a noble cause, which I will definitely say that's not the same thing. Uh, when a soldier jumps on a grenade, uh, they're not doing it because they're the only one around or they're not doing it so that it's somehow injures innocent people or other soldiers it's, it's a selfless act that saves other people's lives i guess in a really really roundabout way you could say that a suicide bomber taking out soldiers or a humvee could potentially indirectly save lives down the road of other fellow you know al-qaeda members or isis members or whatever it might be but it's not the same thing if you're if you're trying to draw some type of a metaphor there, there's jumping on a grenade is saving directly saving your friends lives that's a noble cause uh, a suicide bombing is a cowardice act uh, that's that's meant to cause fear and intimidation in others so again we're, we're seeing that and we're going to talk about it at length he's got a very perverse look at the world at this point in July of 2009, Nadal was transferred to Fort Hood, where he would be assigned to work in the Darnall Army Medical Center on base. And two weeks after moving to Colleen, Texas, Nadal walked into a gun shop and purchased a FN Herzl 5.7mm handgun, a model that was suggested to him after he asked for the most technologically advanced weapon with the greatest magazine capacity. And I don't talk a lot about handguns on this but I think it's important here. He's he's asking for the most technologically advanced weapon, and this FN Herzl is a very technologically advanced weapon. It's very accurate. What I found more interesting is the 5.7 millimeter size of the bullets for the gun. Basically, a 9 millimeter bullet is considered small, and a AR-15, what most people assume is assault rifle, the M16 in the U.S. military fires a 5.56 millimeter round. So this round is only slightly in size, I should say diameter, is only slightly bigger than a AR-15 round and it's coming out of a handgun. So it's not gonna have the same force behind it uh, that, that an, a round is coming out of a rifle. But the smaller size is going to allow you to carry a lot more rounds in the magazine without it having to be an extremely extended magazine. So this 5.7 millimeter round, you can actually get 20 of these rounds into a magazine. Most 9 millimeters, your most in the standard rounds for a handgun would be somewhere between 12 and 15. 
So you're carrying roughly 40% more ammo per magazine by using this smaller diameter round. And from all I can, all I read, it's still a pre pretty damaging round in terms of its lethality, uh, especially for headshots. And for that reason, Nadal located a gun range, and he would actually buy thousands of rounds of ammunition and shoot at least twice a month as he improved his aim until he was hitting targets at 100 yards with the handgun, which is an extremely difficult thing to do. Uh, most handgun engagements, you get pretty inaccurate past, say, 10 to 15 yards. Uh, you might still hit the target, but you're not going to potentially hit what you're aiming for per se unless you're very very good with the handgun uh, sometimes you know if you take your time you get out to 25 yards and sometimes uh, and i've shot out to about 50 yards with a handgun and yes you can still hit the target if you really work on your your aim your accuracy your breathing your stance your grip everything like that and, and you really focus on that and you have a good gun I could see at 50 yards, you, you could get somewhat consistent. Hitting them at 100 yards, which is a football field length away with a handgun, is is very difficult to do. But he's, like I said, he's shooting thousands of rounds to get better with his aim. And it's one of those things where if you can hit a target at 100 yards consistently, hitting targets at 10, 15, 20 yards is going to become easy for you. And he was also said to only aim for headshots on his closer targets, and he got proficient enough to hit 80 to 90% of his headshots. So he's he's setting himself up to go on this, this killing spree. And as November approached, Nadal grew more and more stressed. He had received orders to ship out to Afghanistan, and he would be leaving November 28th for Fort Benning, Georgia, to start his mobilization. And he had serious reservations about going overseas and potentially having to shoot and kill fellow Muslims. And we've talked about this a little bit. It's not as if he's going to a frontline unit that's going to be going out and patrol into sector every day and, and potentially having to shoot and kill Muslims. He's likely going to be on some base behind sandbagged walls and, and dealing with soldiers coming in with mental issues from what they've experienced in combat. And so I, don't, I think he's kind of making a mountain out of a molehill on this, but that's, uh, again, the way he's viewing the world. So at some point before November 5th, Nadal decided he would carry out an attack on U.S. soldiers at Fort Hood. On the morning of November 5th, he gave away his limited furniture, telling recipients he was shipping out on Friday and he wouldn't need it. He then drove to Fort Hood and prayed with a fellow Muslim officer before arriving at the Soldier Readiness Center. He entered the building at 1.34 p.m. with the FN pistol and his pockets loaded with 20 to 30 20 round magazines for the pistol. Nadal walked up to a desk and told the civilian contractor that the officer in charge needed her assistance in an urgent manner. Nadal would later say he made up this reason to remove her from the area because he only wanted to kill soldiers. Nadal was said to have prayed shortly before pulling out the handgun and yelling Alua Akbar and opening fire. He had put in earplugs prior to walking the building so the shooting wouldn't hurt his ears. Witnesses said Nadal originally started shooting quickly in a fan-like pattern, just sending out as many bullets downrange as fast as possible, but then slowed down and started picking out individual targets. Several people, including Captain John Gaffney, a civilian PA named Michael Cahill, and Specialist Logan Burnett tried to rush Nadal and end the shooting spree. 
Captain Gaffney and Michael were shot and killed, and Specialist Burnett was shot in the hip and retreated to cover. Survivors said that Nadal began walking around the center and targeting uniformed service members, passing up civilians, and the unarmed military personnel was shot on sight by Nadal. At one point, Nadal came across five civilians huddled under a table. He pointed the handgun with his equipped laser sight at one of the civilians and then walked away without shooting any of them. So one thing people might not understand is when you're on base, it is very rare other than if you're an MP, a member of the military police, or for some reason have a reason to be carrying a weapon because of issues like high suicide rates, high emotions, uh, unfortunately things like PTSD and just just a, a general distrust, I guess, of soldiers, often for good reason. It's not as if soldiers are walking around a base in the U.S. loaded for combat like they would be in Iraq or Afghanistan or, or somewhere else in the world. Uh, it's It's very rare that you're going to have military personnel with live ammunition in with weapons on them on a base and Nadal's going to know this he's going to know that his only real threat is going to come from uh eventually these base police and the mps and it's what we just talked about with the the shooting in yet and yesterday's episode uh in colleen texas what what these shooters are looking for is soft targets people that aren't going to be armed people that aren't allowed to carry weapons legally or or will refuse to carry them because they could get themselves in trouble if they do so he knows that nobody's going to be shooting back at him until the the police show up so he's walking through but because he's committing this as an act of jihad against the u.s military he's very careful the only civilian that he kills the entire time is this physician's assistant that rushes him to try to get the gun away from him. And that's kind of one of those things where he doesn't have a choice. It's not like he's going to stand there and let this guy take his gun away from him just because he's a civilian. Uh, he, he decides that's the, the one civilian he has to shoot. But anytime he comes across a civilian that is in a compromised position or anything like that, he, there's a couple times he aims his handgun at them, but then he walks away. And some of the building occupants had broken a window and jumped out to escape the carnage. As Nidal ran out of soldiers to shoot, he exited the center and was met by responding base civilian officer Kimberly Munley. Officer Munley exchanged fire with Nadal and she was hit three times. Once by shrapnel in her hand as one of Nadal's bullets shattered as it hit metal by her vehicle, and two rounds struck her, one in the knee and one in her femur. The bullet that struck her femur shattered the bone and she dropped to the ground. Nidal walked up to her and kicked her service pistol out of her reach and then walked away. Nidal continued to shoot at uniformed service members that he found running around outside the building. He again avoided shooting at civilians, even those trying to treat the wounded soldiers. And I read this two ways. One said that Officer Munley actually hit Nadal twice and that one of the bullets hit his spine, which paralyzed him in the arms. Uh, and it was something where as he tried to get to who's going to pick up her gun or something along those lines and he realized his arm wouldn't work and then there's other articles that state that he wasn't hit by anything and it wasn't until uh, this next civilian police officer shows up that that he's taken down so 
I don't know which one is true. I don't know if this Officer Munley severely wounded Nidal and that limited his ability to carry on his rampage or whether it was just the timing of the these two shootouts are, are very close to one another and they're not exactly sure the, the sequence of events. Uh, and again, some of it's just how it's reported. So Nadal continued to shoot at uniformed service members that he found running around outside the building, and he again avoided shooting at civilians, even those trying to treat the wounded soldiers. And as Nadal was searching for more soldiers, another civilian police officer, Sergeant Mark Todd, arrived at the scene of the shooting and ordered Nidal to surrender. Nidal turned and began firing at Sergeant Todd, but ran out of bullets in his magazine, and before he could reload, Sergeant Todd shot Nidal five times, dropping him to the ground. Sergeant Todd rushed Nidal and kicked his gun away and put Nidal in handcuffs. Nidal lost consciousness as medical staff and emergency services rushed into the building to render aid to the injured inside. One of the responders later stated the floor inside the building was so covered in blood from the victims that it was difficult to walk or carry anyone in and out without slipping. After Nadal was taken into custody and the survivors taken to base and nearby medical centers, investigators began processing the scene. They found 13 people lost their lives, including 12 soldiers and the civilian PA that had attempted to stop Nidal early in the shooting. An unborn child of one of the victims was also killed, bringing the total death toll to 14. Nidal was taken to a trauma center in Temple, Texas, and later moved to an Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. He was kept under heavy guard for his security, and while doctors were able to save his life, one of the bullets that struck him had severed his spinal cord, rendering him a paraplegic. The Army CID, assisted by the base military police, the Texas Rangers, Texas DPS troopers, deputies from the Bell County Sheriff's Office, and the FBI all assisted in investigating the shooting. A total of 146 spent cartridge cases were removed from inside the medical center, all fired by Nidal. Investigators found 68 spent cartridge cases outside fired by Nidal and the two responding police officers for a total of 214 rounds fired during the incident. When Nidal was taken into custody, he was found to still have 177 rounds of unfired ammunition loaded into magazines in his pocket, and he would have likely claimed more lives if not for the bravery of the on-base police officers. The entire shooting lasted around 10 minutes, and after the shooting stopped, announcements were placed onto the base website informing people that the attack had not been a training exercise. And this is something the military loves to do there training exercises, their drills, their anything like that. So I'm sure many people, the rumors were quickly spread around the base that this was just, this was nothing but a drill. This was a, you know, some type of a terrorist attack on the base type drill or exercise. And so they had to put it out there that this had not been a training exercise. While Nidal recovered in various hospitals, his path to religious extremism was investigated by several agencies. They located his various emails and online postings and discovered that his extremism began after the death of his mother in 2001. His mother died after a long battle with cancer, and he soon realized their Muslim faith had not been strong while he was growing up. His parents' convenience store sold alcohol, an act he saw as a sin, and he worried that his mother's lack of faith and her sins would mean that she was doomed to spend her afterlife burning in an unending fire. And so it's actually because his mother is battling this cancer and Nidal knows that she's going to, to pass, he really turned up his Muslim faith prior to her passing 
And this is when he discovers, because of his studying of Islam, that there's this belief of an afterlife, and if you sinned in your life, you're, you're doomed to the Islamic version of hell. And he's worried that his mother, because of her lack of devotion during her life, uh, these sins that she accumulated by selling alcohol to people, that she would burn in this unending fire of hell. And so it's even before his mother passes away, he's he's already really studying the religion. He's becoming uh, more religious. And then when she passes, he makes this decision that he's going to become extremely devout in his faith. And he believes that the deeds that he does could rescue his mother in the afterlife and she could be absolved of her sins. And this sent Nadal on a path of strengthening his faith faith even more and putting more emphasis on living his life centered around the teachings of the Quran. And it was back in 2001 when he met Anwar Alawaki while the Inman was still a moderate leader of the faith and Alawaki presided over Nadal's mother's funeral and Nadal turned to the Imam for help in becoming a stronger Muslim. Nadal was attracted to the way Alawaki gave his teachings even helping the non-Arabic speaking Nadal learn some Arabic during his sermons. So it was actually this Alawaki was, he was good friends with a lot of the political elite in Washington, D.C. back in 2001. He was a well-respected man in the area and a, a very religious Muslim, but he was not extreme in any measure at this point. His, his teachings were very not related to jihad, not related to... You know, committing acts of violence in any way. It wasn't until after these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan that he would move to Yemen and become an Al-Qaeda sympathizer and kind of cut ties that that the extremism came in. So it's not as if in 2001, uh, there's there's no proof that Awaki started to radicalize Nadal. Uh, he, he did definitely open up the door for Nadal to understand Islam better, but there's no proof that he actually radicalized him at this point. And Nadal started to see the U.S. in a different light after the terrorist attacks of 9-11 and started to see that it was a that the U.S. was at war with the Muslim faith. He felt the U.S. wanted to weaken Islam around the world and they would do it through violent acts against Muslims and he searched online for chat rooms and message boards for people with similar views. By 2003, Nadal began trying to indoctrinate members of his family who he saw as too secular in regards to their Islamic faith. He would only talk about Islam and how they needed to be more devout, and this actually had the opposite effect as he turned many family members further away from Islam as they saw how it was radicalizing him. And so we all have that family member, and it doesn't always have to be faith. It could be somebody who's going on some new crazy diet of some sort, uh, you know, some something that's off the wall. They they they, or they may have started you know, some one of these direct sale companies, and this is all they talk about. Uh, you try to have a conversation with them about their favorite sports team, or you know, the weather, or anything, and everything turns to whatever this topic is that's on their mind constantly. And so, in 2003, every family function that Nadal is attending. All he will talk about is 
Islam and how they all need to be more devout and they need to follow Sharia law and you know failing to do so they're going to end up in hell and and again it has this opposite effect because they're all seeing how his strength and his faith has made him for lack of a better terms crazy about this religion and they don't want to go down that path so they're actually going away from from their faith they're becoming even more secular as a result of what he is doing so this is going to cause Nidal to isolate from even his family members and the already introverted man found himself with a few people in the world who wanted to spend time with him and instead of trying to form bonds with his fellow interns at Walter Reed he spent his off time further diving into his faith and establishing stricter guidelines in his life for example, when someone tried to take a picture of Nadal and his co-workers at Walter Reed, he refused to be in the photo because there were females in the photo. And he began bringing up religion at work in what many felt was an attempt to get into a religious debate whenever he could. And by 2007, Nadal was starting his plans to take action against America, realizing his faith and his career in the U.S. Army would never coincide. It was said that he wanted to find a woman to marry but he wanted one that would strictly follow Sharia law and be submissive and wear a hijab, and he struggled to find that amongst the freedom-minded women in America. So he's, you know, just, he's basically a radicalized uh, Muslim in America where a lot of Muslims are what he, he was raised as, a, a more, what they called a more, a more cultural Muslim where they, they practice. And in, in Christianity, sometimes we call these people the, the, the Christmas and Easter Christians or the people that, you know, they do practice Christianity in their life, but they only attend services at, at Christmas and Easter. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with that. Everybody follows their faith the way they follow their faith. And some people are, are stronger in their faith or, or believe more in an organized religion. And some people you know, take the teachings of, of whatever religion it might be and, you know, follow it more from afar. And most, you know, Muslims, especially you know, Muslim women in this country, they don't want to strictly follow Sharia law and they don't want to be submissive to their husbands and have to wear a hijab out in in public everywhere they go and not be able to drive and not be able to work and all this kind of stuff this is what he's looking for and again he's not going to find this uh, in in america and when nidal was supposed to give pre presentations on mental health and soldiers he used the opportunity to present on the evils of american policies against muslims one of his presentations justified suicide bombings because the war on terror was a war on islam in fact, all of his academic papers were ramblings about his personal struggles with his faith and his service and had no evidence of academic research or anything related to mental health. So as he's interning at Walter Reed, he's supposed to be you know, doing these own, his own studies, writing his own papers, uh, interviewing soldiers, which he's doing, and, and helping soldiers that are coming back from these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan deal with some of their mental health issues. But even some of his papers that were titled things like Muslim soldiers and how they handle the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was something similar to that where it was almost as if it was academic in nature in terms of looking at 
how these Muslim soldiers were handling having been deployed to a Muslim country to fight religious extremism and and nothing in there actually referenced any other soldiers it was all about him and how he struggled to understand how he could serve his country and be Muslim while we there these wars in Iraq and Afghanistan so everything was always turned about him and his religious views and his personal struggles and this is why he was often put on academic probation because he wasn't actually doing the work that he was supposed to be doing. He was just doing everything to further his uh, religious transition into extremism. And the investigation, as I mentioned before, revealed that his writings to Alawaki, who by 2008 had radicalized and moved to Yemen and was recruiting for Al-Qaeda, did trigger an investigation, but he only asked those hypothetical questions and he didn't get any answer back, so he was, not, he was seen as not a person of interest. And by the time he was given his orders for Fort Hood, Null was fully radicalized. He had rented a cheap apartment off base and kept so little money in the bank that he wouldn't accrue any interest because interest was against his faith. In order to maintain his low bank account, he donated 75% of his salary to Islamic charities and turned down his $250,000 life insurance policy through the army because insurance was against his religion. When he received his orders to deploy to Afghanistan, he saw it as a message from God to carry out his attack on soldiers. He did consider doing the attack at Fort Benning, where he had been ordered for pre-mobilization, or waiting until he got to Afghanistan, but he ultimately decided on Fort Hood because he was familiar with the layout of the medical center. Nadal regained consciousness on November 7th, two days after the attack. He refused to talk to law enforcement, and he was soon charged with 13 counts of murder and 32 counts of attempted murder. He was to be tried under UCMJ, which is the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and under those charges he was eligible for the death penalty. I mean, it also happened in Texas, so even if they decided to pursue non-military justice, he would have been eligible for the death penalty. The UCMJ is obviously going to be used because he was a an officer, because his attack occurred on military property against military personnel so it made the most sense but i could see you know sometimes soldiers are tried for ucmj when they commit acts off of military bases and if it's something like murder and you're in a state that doesn't have the death penalty but you're a member of the u.s military and you commit that murder while you're under orders to be somewhere or to be at a base there's a good chance you could be tried under UCMJ and therefore be eligible for the death penalty. So there's reasons why UCMJ is used against military personnel. And it, we're going to talk about it briefly here, but it's, it's, it's a different system than the, the regular American justice system. And so instead of a grand jury, there's going to be an Article 32 hearing, which is similar to grand jury, but this is open to the public. And this was held on October 12, 2010. And basically, so a grand jury, or in this case, an Article 32 hearing, is when the prosecution gets to present all of its evidence to the judge. Basically, uh, in, or in the case of a grand jury, it's to the grand jury, but all the evidence is presented, and it's basically a thumbs up for, let's go through the trial for this guy, the charges are good, or a thumbs down saying, yeah, there's not enough here, let's not waste our time. 
in most cases, especially this, it's going to be a formality. A lot of the times these grand juries in the private uh, sector or outside of the military, I should say, they're used in cases like officer-involved shootings. And it didn't used to be this way. It used to be that a county attorney would just look at an officer-involved shooting, and if it was justified, they'd just say, we're not going to charge the officer. But due to a lot of high-profile officer-involved shootings or deaths of people that are being taken into custody by police officers, a lot of county attorneys have just said every officer-involved death is going to go to a grand jury, and then people will decide whether or not that those charges uh, against that, or if there's going to be charges against that officer. Sometimes it's it's very black and white. It's yes, there are charges. No, there aren't. It's self-defense. It's not self-defense. But like I said, in this case, it's going to be pretty obvious. All the evidence against Nidal, he's going to, this Article 32 hearing is going to go forward. And a little over a month, it was concluded with, and the investigating officer for the hearing affirmed the charges and presented the case to the post commander. So again, this is something very different with the military versus the private sector. We're going to have this Article 32 hearing. These charges are going to be confirmed, and then they're going to be presented to the post commander. And then the post commander, who's a general, is going to review all the charges to decide whether or not there's going to be a court martial. And the reason for this is the UFCMJ is used both stateside, so on U.S. military bases, and it's used around the world, especially in combat zones. And there, especially during times of war like World War II, uh, you didn't have time to ship somebody home for a, a court-martial in most cases. So these court-martials had to occur sometimes in the field, sometimes you know back at a, a mobilization center or something like that, but you weren't always going to have lawyers and judges around and all this kind of stuff to sit and, and postulate over whether or not there should be charges or whatever it might be. So you have these very strict guidelines of, okay, if a soldier's believed to have committed a crime there's going to be this article 32 hearing if they believe there should be charges it's going to go up the chain of command and, and hit somebody pretty high in the chain of command that's going to decide do we want to take this thing to a full court martial and that way there's kind of those checks and balances but at the same time you don't have to sit around and wait for the the legal stuff to work itself to find a judge or whatever it might be it can just go to a general that can read over the, the findings of the Article 32 and decide whether this soldier is going to face a court-martial. And so on July 6, 2011, the post commander agreed to a trial, and if convicted, the punishment would be death. A few days later, a court-martial date was set for March 5, 2012. However, the trial would go through several delays, including delays when Nidal refused to shave his beard. Nidal claimed he didn't have to shave his beard, it was as part of his religious belief. But several judges and appeals later, it was ruled that Nidal could be forced shaven for the trial. The delays for trial prep and the beard pushed the trial back to August 6, 2013. Nadal fired his lawyers before the trial, but the court mandated that he maintain them as advisors so he could not appeal the verdict on grounds of inadequate counsel. Nadal had tried to include a defense of others defense pre-trial, claiming his actions were done in defense of Muslims that were being killed by soldiers but the judge refused to allow the defense. Nidal was found guilty on all counts on August 28, 2013, 
and subsequently sentenced to death. He remains on death row at Fort Leavenworth as his several mandatory appeals are exhausted. The U.S. Army and federal government originally called the attack a workplace violence incident. Many Americans and soldiers were upset as they felt from the beginning that this was an act of terrorism. The workplace violence designation denied many of the victims from being awarded medals to include Purple Hearts and their associated benefits. Thankfully, this decision was reversed and the incident was deemed an act of terrorism and all who were killed or injured were given proper accolades and benefits. But the tragedy of that day was just the first of many that befell the base known as Fort Hood. And over the next two episodes, we will break down several more tragic deaths and another mass shooting that took that shook the base and the community around it once again. And just real quick before we, we go, um, I know this was a lot more narrative than discussion. Uh, this was a really big case. There was, you know, it was all over the news when it happened. There's, there's actually a, a ton of information out there about all the stuff that occurred afterwards all these different appeals the the court the forced shaving of his beard the religious uh, exemptions he was trying to claim i didn't want to get all bogged down into that stuff uh, i wanted to get through the crime itself and charges and uh, the conviction and, and the outcome just as, as quickly as possible because we again we do have a lot of stuff to cover over these next few episodes, but this this was clearly a case as as the the main report that I read of somebody who you know got radicalized. He was a loner, and this can happen whether it's an Islamic religion. It happens in in extremism. You know, a perfect example of domestic terrorism that's born out of this was Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombing. He developed on his own and with the help of others, just like Nadal, uh, this belief that the U.S. government was evil. And after the events of Waco and Ruby Ridge, he was going to strike back against the government. And he ended up committing the Oklahoma City bombing as his act of terrorism against the government. And so we see it at all levels. We see... Or, or I guess I should say from all religions, from all aspects of, of, of life where you get these lone guys that get it in their head that they are going to go out in some type of a blaze of glory. They're going to become famous for stepping up against whatever they believe is wrong. And in this case, it was due to his own studies and I would say the perversion of, of a faith uh, to, to use it to believe that he was justified. And it was interesting, before we leave here, there was one part of the article, that, or the report that I read, said that after you know, he committed these crimes, uh, he had a couple moments where he appeared to not be so sure. I guess they, they brought in a, a military imam and then another well-respected civilian imam to talk with Nadal after he committed these crimes and try to convince him that taking innocent lives was not you know, the path to saving his mother, was not the path to saving himself, and that he would actually uh, face religious justice for what he had done uh, based on the Quran. And it was said that Although they thought they were maybe going to get him to understand that, in the end, he ultimately said he needed to do what he needed to do because that was his religious beliefs. But then he ended up fasting 
on several occasions and he, he would fast from i think it was sunrise to sundown for each of the victims of his rampage and he did this just in case he wasn't right about this being a just act and that he felt like he would then it was kind of like a safety measure that he would get you know forgiven for his acts because he had fasted as a means of remorse for what he had done and so He's so strong in his faith that he believed he had to do this and this is what God wanted him to do. But at the same time, he wasn't so sure that he has he had to take out this insurance policy on his acts by, by fasting for the victim. So, you know, it's, it's a bit of hypocrisy there that if he was so strong in his faith, he would have, you know, eventually gone to his grave here feeling what he did was right and he didn't need to remorse for it at all but but he had to go through this backup plan and then i guess there was a statement that he prepared for the court that he ended up not reading and in there it, it talked about how he believed that this was what he needed to do but if he was wrong he was sorry to the people that that he had harmed and, and again it showed that despite having so much belief that what he did was right there w there were reservations that he had that maybe what he had done wasn't wasn't the correct thing to do and part of that could come from you know he had such a strong love for a country that's why he originally served back in the 80s and 90s he thought that america was this great place but it was a combination of him getting into very extreme religious views at the time when the u.s was at war with a couple uh, muslim countries and he just it all combined into him feeling like he needed to commit this this act of violence as a part of his jihad as a, and that th this act would atone his his mother's sins and rescue her from hell so again a, a very interesting case uh, a very sad case for those obviously that were killed and unfortunately as we're going to see it's just it's just more tragic death and we're going to cover some more that occur at Fort Hood over the next couple episodes. So that's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for future episodes. Feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.